You may be seated. Well, if you joined us late, you know, you uh, might be helpful to know that we are celebrating today our 10th anniversary of worshiping together as a church. And what I've done uh, for today is I've chosen a special text. We're going to take a little break from our James series and hear something from Jesus that I want to relate to our anniversary celebration, but it'll be, I believe, helpful for all of us, regardless of whether we've been a part of this church from the beginning or not. And it's in Matthew 18, and it's the, the text is printed there on page 10 in your bulletin if you want to follow along or if you have your Bible. Matthew 18, just the first four verses. Very short text, but a lot going on here. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for your spirit to move, O Lord, as we hear this now, for Jesus' glory and in his good name. Amen. Well, before I explain why I chose this text for our 10-year anniversary, let's just take a moment with what's actually happening in the text. The issue, obviously, is greatness. The disciples, you know, there's this new kingdom in town, and every kingdom has its hierarchies, every kingdom has its kind of inner ring, and the disciples have figured out, you know, if we're going to hang with the king, we're going to be a part of this kingdom, we should kind of figure out what the, how the hierarchies work, who's kind of at the center, who's not so important. They want to be sure they know who's who in this new kingdom, and so they ask the very understandable question, so who is the greatest in this kingdom from heaven? And Jesus doesn't even respond directly to that. Before he even says anything to the disciples, he calls a little child. And he calls this little one over. You know, we've got a lot of little people at Trinity, always have, and it's very cool. You imagine grabbing one of these little people, you know, these little mushrooms that run around, have them come up, and Jesus sets this little child in the middle of the disciples. You can imagine the poor little thing looking around wide-eyed at all these big, burly fishermen and so on. And Jesus says, here you go. You need to be like this if you want to be great in this kingdom. Now, you know, we've heard that many times. What on earth is Jesus actually saying? He's obviously not saying that we all need to become cute and cuddly, like these little people who run around. For most of you, that would be a very formidable task, if I may say so. He's not saying, you know, there's this very romantic idea about children, that they're somehow sweetly innocent. And he's not saying we need to become sweetly innocent. I don't know where that idea of sweet, innocent children ever got started. Any of you have ever spent time trying to reason with a wrathful toddler. No, children are not innocent. He's not, you know, painting this sort of romanticized picture of, you know, these sweet, innocent little children. That's not what he's talking about. The context is that there's this argument about who's the greatest. And it's kind of shocking for Jesus to take a little child. Imagine one of our little children, and he sets that little child in the mist, and he says, here it is. Now, how great is a child? I mean, I really think about this for a minute. You know, we've heard this so often, it's easy to kind of let it go over our heads. Imagine, you know, we're wondering, what's it take to be important in the kingdom of, from heaven? And Jesus says, here, how, you know, if we took one of our little ones up here and we put them in front of the church, many things would come to mind as you look at that child. Many, many wonderful things. I don't think any of you would think of this child as a great person. You know, one of the great ones of the earth. That's just not how, that's not what comes to mind when you think about children at all. That's not, you know, understandably, they're, they're little people. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, he's obviously targeting the way we conceptualize, the way we imagine 
greatness. And as I said, in the real world, children are not going to make the cut. They're just not going to be considered great. I mean, unless you have a child who somehow really early on just shows a kind of prodigy potential, you don't ever think of children as they're, they're, they're wonderful. They're, they're great but in, a, in a way, but they're not like great, great, right? They're not like super important. And why? It, that's not their fault that they're not great. They're, they're, they're young. The reality is we don't think they're great because they don't know a lot and they can't do a lot. And that's not their fault at all. They're still growing. They don't know a lot. They can't do a lot. They're completely dependent. And it's interesting, children seem to sort of intuitively sense this about themselves because even as little ones very boldly explore the boundaries of their knowledge and the boundaries of their ability. This is the thing that gives parents heart attacks all the time. You know, kids are always pushing the boundaries. They don't know enough to do what they're doing, but they're going to do it anyway. They're not able to do what they're trying to do, but, you know, they're going to do it anyway. They're climbing that tree. They are not really ready to climb. But it's interesting that in moments when the child suddenly feels uncertain or vulnerable, you know, gets stuck up in that tree that she, she shouldn't be climbing. If there's a sense of uncertainty or vulnerability, what do children intuitively do? They don't do this cognitively. They're not ready for that, but they intuitively turn toward and look toward those who have knowledge and those who have power that they do not have. They run to mom and dad. They run to their guardian. They run to the adult or the older, the older child. There is this intuitive, intuitive trust in the competence of those over them. They intuitively entrust themselves to the competence of those who are over them. And that's what frees children to live with that open-eyed wonder that we all get nostalgic for as you look at children. They just have this really open-eyed wonder as they approach the world because they have that trust in the competency of those who are over them. You don't see this in children who have been abused or neglected. But children who have that intuitive, who, whose trust has not been violated, who trust just intuitively, they don't think about it, they just intuitively trust that the people over them have got it. The, they, they, they just have this wonder and they can give full attention to the things in their life and they can fully enjoy the things in their life and they're unburdened by care because they don't have to be competent. They don't, they, 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 they're at rest. And then that changes. It always changes. And at some point, children begin to kind of grow out of that and they become self-aware about their own knowledge and power, what they know and what they don't know, what they're able to do and are not able to do relative to other people's knowledge and power. And it's very interesting to watch children go through this transition where suddenly they are very self-aware about, I don't know as much as that person. Or I can do something that other person can't. And there's this self-consciousness, self-awareness suddenly about my knowledge and power relative to other people's knowledge and power. And what often happens with this self-consciousness, and it can be very difficult to sort of get used to, wow, I'm not, I don't know as much as these people, or I'm not as good at things as these people, and they wrestle through that. There's also, along with that, very often children begin to have a kind of suspiciousness towards other people's knowledge and other people's power because they realize people will use their knowledge and their power to hurt them. Peers will do this. When they know more than you, that's not a, they can hurt you with that. When they are able to do things you can't do, that can end up being very hurtful. It's even worse if it's the adults in your life, far more knowledgeable and powerful, and they start acting hurtfully toward you. And there begins to be an increasing sort of suspicion you see in children of other people have more knowledge and power. And it's, it's interesting to notice that it's in this kind of new, found, sort of competitive mode that children are now candidates for greatness. 
before they cross that threshold and they're just open-eyed wonder, you know, enjoying the world because they're at peace, they're not, they're not going to be great competitors. When they step over that line, they begin to be very aware of kind of like how my knowledge and power matches up against other people's. Now they're actually sort of in the game of greatness. So what's Jesus really saying here when he says, you want to be great, be like this child? He's certainly not telling us not to grow up. He's not telling us we should never become more and more competent. That's just, you know, biologically necessary. But what he is saying very clearly is that if you want to enter the kingdom that's from heaven and you want to live in this kingdom, you must, it's very emphatic, you must turn and trust him like a little child. That's absolutely basic. You've got to turn and you've got to trust Jesus the way a little child trusts. And what's implicit in that, though it's not so explicitly stated here, is that when you trust Jesus like that, it is going to revolutionize how you look at other people in this kingdom and how you relate with the other people in this kingdom. You're not going to sit and squabble about who's the greatest. It's going to really change your social dynamics. Now, what I want to do for a couple of minutes here is I just want to bring all that that I've just said about the text into our, into our moment now, 2021. And talk for a moment or two about just challenges to childlikeness. Challenges to childlikeness. Let me ask you guys this. What comes to mind if I say to you, things are not as they seem? Or maybe if I put it more in sort of a narrative, things are not what they once seemed. What comes to mind? Things are not as they seem, or they're not as they once seemed. Now, in childhood, that's wonderful. Did any of you guys ever play with that Winnie the Pooh toy when you were little where you had like six different levers or buttons and, and, and no matter if you dial a dial or you press a lever or you push a button, either you know, Tigger or Pooh or Eeyore pops up. Any of you ever play with that toy? Anyone ever seen that toy? Man, y'all are, okay. <laughs> Fine. Kids love that stuff because things are not as they seem. It looked like a little dial and suddenly, boom, there's Eeyore, you know, and, and they, you know, they belly laugh and it's awesome. Things are not as they seem. Sometimes they scream in terror. But anyway, things are not as they seem. You know, the first time you see a little kid hear the ocean in his shell, things are not as they seem. First time you see your grandpa pull off his thumb. You ever see that trick? Things are not as they seem. We're entering the looking glass. It looks like a wardrobe, but things are not as they seem. And it's part of the wonder of childhood. But, you know, for most of us, that sunny optimism of childhood, things are not as they seem, yay, that very quickly began to give way to something else in our life stories, didn't it? We began to see through people, began to see through institutions and systems in which we found ourselves, and many times, let's be honest, it it was bad, as you saw through people and you saw through systems you were a part of. Now, some of that for us as we've lived, some of that has brought a lot of wisdom. It's what the Bible calls discernment, the ability to realize one thing is not like another. Things are not always as they seem. You need to be able to see through that. You know, fool me once, ha-ha, fool me twice, no. Shame on me. There is wisdom in seeing through. Things are not as they seem. But for many of us over the years, and I know your stories enough to know this is true for a lot of you, for many of us over the years, that growing awareness, things are not as they seem, has veered into what we call cynicism. Very deep distrust of people particularly and a self-protective shell. Maybe a very socially, you know, well-adjusted protective shell, but a very self-protective shell. Some of you I know have at times really been able to feel the psalmist when he says in his haste, all mankind are liars. You have felt that. 
And then, you know, you get a bunch of us together with our life stories, and 10 years ago, we planted a church together, and it's been 10 years. And 10 years ago, Trinity had all the shine of a fresh start. I went back to my first sermon. I went back to a bunch of the stuff in those days, and it had all the shine of, you know, a new thing, and, you know, we're all excited, those of us who were there at that time. And, and over the 10 years since, we have found another way that shine wears off in life it's not always because things are bad and we get cynical. I don't think Trinity's been a bad experience for most of us. In fact, I think Trinity's been a really wonderful 10 years. I, we've never had a church split, thank God. We've never had, God has kept us from wolves invading the flock. We basically have had just a lot of, I think, very healthy, you know, kind of normalcy, and it's been really good. And so it's not like I think we've, this church experience has made us cynical, but there's another way the shine wears off, and that is not so much cynicism as just weariness, Right? Because things are not as they seemed. Things are harder than they seemed 10 years ago. You know, raising saints. I was so full of fire to raise kids in the, in the faith 10 years ago, and I still am. But I'll tell you what, 10 years of experience, I've realized raising a saint is not as easy as it seemed. Building community. I'm still at a loss on that one. We have a loving church, but there's a whole lot to building community. It's just so much harder than it seemed 10 years ago. I had all these ideas, and they, you know, it's hard. Reaching neighbors. Gosh, I was so on fire to be a missional church. We're going to reach the lost. We're going to see people get saved. Things are not as they seem. Harder than it sounds. Growing in holiness together. It's hard. And bitter experiences in life, whether they're the kind that make you cynical because they're really bad or whether they're just the kind that kind of wear, wear on you because they're just hard, those bitter experiences, they do one of two things to you. They either make you softer or they make you harder. And it's especially tough when the hard things in life or the bad things in life involve people. One of my very favorite theologians, Herman Bovink, once wrote in a letter to a friend, the saddest experience in life the saddest experience in life is indeed the sense of disappointment that one acquires through people. As you realize, people are harder than they seemed. Sometimes people are a lot worse than they seemed. And these are, these are challenges. And meanwhile, so 10 years of Trinity, and then I don't even need to tell you guys how the world has changed since 2011. Speaking of hard things and bad things. You know, we have just been through 10 years in my lifetime. My mother and father tell me in their lifetime, I suspect my grandparents would even say if they were alive in their lifetime, I don't know if we've ever seen such a compacted series of just disorienting failures of public figures and institutions. Disorienting failures. A massive, I would say, really now culture-wide, in a way that's probably unprecedented in our nation's history, an, a, a culture-wide loss of confidence in public figures and public institutions. And Christians caught up in this. How many Christian rise and fall stories have you heard in the last 10 years? It's absolutely cynicism-inducing. And, and the world changes. You know, this has been compounded by a couple of things. One is that for good or ill, the failures are just so much more visible than they ever used to be. You know, it was a time when you had to read a newspaper. Now it's just in your face all the time through social media and so on. Everything's a spectacle now, and that's, that's in, increased cynicism, I think. But also, a second thing that's compounded this in our world is just we live actually in a, in a, in a culture now that is, I think, self-consciously suspicious, it's actually a, a, an ideology now that I think kind of has permeated the entire political spectrum that behind everything everyone says, behind everything everyone does, there's a hidden agenda. 
I hear this from the right and the left. I hear it to the point I don't want to listen anymore. There's always this fomenting suspicion and cynicism. Yeah, they say that, but here's what's really going on. Yeah, they do that, but here's what's really going on. You just hear, you all talk this way. Always an agenda of greed. Always an agenda of privilege. Always an agenda of power and deception and oppression. It even shows up in our humor. We probably have perfected, as no culture in history, the art of ironic humor. See, ironic humor is when you're winking every time something's said. The people who are laughing are the people who know that what was just said isn't really what's meant. It's some other hidden meaning that's known only to the enlightened, and that's what makes us laugh. That's classic 21st century North American humor. And now you find yourself living in a world where even facts and data just aren't what they seem. How do you even know what a fact is? How do you even know what, it, what data holds up? Things are not as they seem. And all of this, these challenges to childlikeness, they have left many of us, I know, if not quite exhausted, if not quite disillusioned, it's left a lot of us at least very hard to enthuse. If you came to me right now and said, Ben Miller, there's this big new thing happening in the Christian community, my honest response would probably be, What's the hype now? I think a lot of you would feel the same. Oh, good, another big thing springing up. Now, some of that's wise. Some of that is the hard lesson that the one who puts on his armor should not boast like the one who's actually taken it off after battle. But what I want to suggest to you is that waning enthusiasm for a Christian, please hear this, waning enthusiasm for a Christian is a symptom of forsaking childlikeness. Now, I want to turn a corner having talked about challenges to childlikeness, and I want to talk about childlike faith, childlike faith and its fruit for just a couple minutes. There are just two things on my heart that I want to say to you all at the 10-year mark, and here they are, two things, childlike faith and, and, and its fruit. Here we go, two things. Number one, I just really want to exhort you guys at the 10-year mark, I'm going to say a few things about this. Keep believing. Keep believing. I do not want to pastor a church. I know you do not want to be in a church where we say things and do things, but we all sort of wink and we say, we all know this is really just a thing we do. It's not real. We all know that, can, that creed we just professed. It's just something we say. It's not real. I want to shepherd a flock that is unironically believing whether we say things and we do things because they're real. The realities behind them are real realities. There's no irony. There's no wink, wink. There's no, yeah, we say, but we all know. We, all, we, you know, we, we do these things, but we all know. I don't, that's not Christianity. A friend of mine I heard speak recently said, we are living in an age that shouts its doubts and whispers its certainties. That's the, that's the 21st century thing. We shout our doubts. We whisper our certainties. I want to be a part of a church that shouts our certainties. Why, beloved? Because they're certain. Because they are certain. You know, a critical stance has its place. A critical stance is valuable. You need to be critical. You need to not just be gullibly believing everything everybody says. God knows that's certainly true now. But the trouble with a critical stance is if that's all you've got, you just keep peeling away the layers of the onion, and there's eventually no onion. Every time you find another layer, it's just a layer that hides what's really going on underneath, and eventually you realize it's not even an onion. That's not faith. That's not Christianity. And Jesus just kind of cuts through that way, that cynical, unbelieving way of thinking, that sort of ironic, yeah, we say and we do, but we all know. He just cuts through that when he demands an answer to this question, who do you say that I am? 
Here I am. Who do you say that I am? Fine, you know what everyone else says, and you can cut through their you know, false readings of who I am. I'm here before you. What's your answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Because we're going to start building from that. And Peter says, you are God's Messiah. And Jesus says, I'll build my church on that confession. That's a certainty. That's what I want to build from. Everything changes from there. I've quoted you before from Jordan Peterson in a recent interview he gave with Jonathan Peugeot where he actually said something I think says more about Christianity than most of what I hear from Christians. He says, what Christians believe about Christ. Now listen, this man's not a professing believer. He says, what Christians believe about Christ seems to me to be oddly plausible, but I still don't know what to make of it, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. I want to be in a church where that's how we think. I don't even know what happened to me if I fully believe the stuff I say I believe. If God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is my Father, and the Lord of heaven and earth, his Son, is, has come in flesh and has been died for my sins, been raised for my justification, ascended to the Father, poured out the Holy Spirit, and reigns over all things in heaven and earth, and the Spirit of God is moving in this age until Christ comes again, having put all of his enemies under his feet to, to glorify all things in heaven and earth and put away evil forever, if I actually believe that... I don't even know how I would live. I don't know what that would do to my mental health. I don't know what that would do to my relationships. I don't know what it would do to my priorities in life, beloved. How does Jordan Peterson get it? And there are churches full of Christians who just mumble through their hymns every Sunday. How is that possible? I ask myself. Believe. Keep believing. That's what I want for you all. That's what I want from me. Believe what, Pastor? Believe in God's presence, purpose, and people. Believe in his presence. You know, one of the most precious verses in the Bible to me in recent months has been one of the best known. For thou art with me. Believe in God's presence. Some of you know what soul-crushing loneliness feels like. The darkest of the 150 Psalms ends with this lament. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Jesus, hours away from unimaginable hell, couldn't even find a friend to pray with him for an hour. In soul-crushing loneliness, thou art with me. In anxiety, tortured anxiety, in the dark watches of the night, thou art with me. In danger, in fear, thou art with me. When I'm tempted, no one's going to see you sin. No one's going to know. It's in the closet. It's in the dark. Thou art with me. In moments of tremendous blessing, when it feels as if God has actually reached from heaven and almost physically touched you with his kindness, thou art with me. Believe in his presence. Paul prays that we would know God as he is, not abstractly, but in living fellowship. I'm not talking here about chasing emotion, chasing experience. You know I grew up in a world where that was all the thing. You're always trying to chase this experience of God. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, real religion, believing in God's presence, it's not so much pursuing God as it is realizing I am being pursued. I love C.S. Lewis's description of this. I've quoted it to you many times. He says, that's the very point at which so many draw back and go no further with Christianity. 
an impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband, that's quite another matter. That's the God you walk with every moment of your life. Believe in God's presence. Keep believing. Believe in God's purpose. What do I mean by God's purpose? I mean what we call the gospel, the simple mission of God to save his world through his son and his spirit. That is God's mission. That is God's purpose. And I love that line in the hymn we sing, Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. It is so tempting for me to preach. I know it's tempting for all of us to live not that gospel, but a then and there gospel. You know, I wish I believed like some of y'all believe. Because you've said this to me many times. Some of you really actually believe, and it's okay. We, we have good conversations about it, but some of you actually believe that this Satan is the ruler of the world. And for you, it makes all kinds of sense. You know, your gospel is when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, and that's your hope. I wish I was like that. I really do. It'd be easier for me to preach. I wish I was a Dunkirk Christian facing west across the English Channel just waiting for the lifeboat to come. Come, Lord Jesus, rapture us out of here. I wish I believed like that because I could just preach and say, you know what? The world is going to hell because it's Satan's world and it makes sense that it's going to hell. So just wait for the lifeboats, people. I could preach that every Sunday. It'd be easy. Instead, I have to preach about a king who reigns and you're like, he doesn't reign. Pastor, I breathe the news. Because see, I'm forced by the Bible to be a D-Day Christian. I'm facing east toward Europe. God help us. It's going to be a long conquest. And yes, there's rest at the end of that conquest. But I'm not waiting for a lifeboat. It's time to get off this beach and go disciple the nations. The thaw has begun. That's the gospel. If we're going to believe that, we're going to preach that, we're going to live that like it's real, we're going to have to come to terms with some hard things like God's patience. I just want God to start dropping the bombs on his enemies. Take them out, Lord. Make things visibly different tomorrow. And God has this long, multi-generational plan. Eric said to me last Sunday, he said, you know what, when you preach this sermon, you should just talk about the fact that really what we're all doing is preparing for our children's children. That's what we're doing. We're building stuff for our children's children. That's the gospel. God has a big old multi-generational plan. He has this thing called you sow, and it looks like your seed dies, and you sit there and you look at the ground, nothing's happening, and then weeds grow, and you've got to deal with that, and it's just slow going, and there's a harvest coming, but it's, it's the law of sowing. But the reality is you believe in God's purpose. The wheels are not just spinning no matter how much it might look like it. You look at Paul, the apostle, at the end of his life. He's dying in a Roman jail, abandoned by most of his friends, and he says, I've kept the faith. Believe in God's purpose. And I'll be honest, beloved, you'd all be a far less daunted by this moment in history if you just read more history. Believe in God's purpose. Believe in his presence, his purpose. Believe in God's people. I believe one holy Catholic apostolic church. The church is an article of faith. I believe in the church as an article of faith the way I believe in God is an article of faith, because you know why? Because the church is God's work. I'll be very honest with you guys. If God was not building his church, I wouldn't believe in us. 
If we had this mission that we had to do to make disciples of the nations and it was you and me and God was not working in this and this was not something he has promised to do, I don't have that much faith in you or me. I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church and in Trinity Church as part of that because this is the work of the Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe in God's people? Do you, are you able with the Apostle Paul to say, we don't regard anyone any longer according to the flesh? I don't look at you guys according to Adam and your sinfulness in Adam and the fact that you're all you know, affected by Adam's death. That's not how I see you anymore. I see you in Christ. I see you as receptacles of the Holy Spirit. I see you as children of God. I see you as saints, as holy ones. I don't know you in Adam. I know you in Christ. I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. It's an article of faith. It's what gives us hope to believe. Do we trust that as we work in Trinity's corner of this mission of God, we're worshiping every week. We're trying to learn how to fellowship. We're learning together. We're training. We're growing. We're bearing witness. Do you believe, beloved, God will give the increase? Do you believe it? Believe in God's presence, his purpose, and his people. Second thing, and I'll be much briefer here. It's on my heart to say. Keep believing. And secondly, and I know you're with me in this, keep bearing fruit. Keep bearing fruit. When you trust Jesus with that childlike faith, his presence, his purpose, his people that he's building, when you trust in Jesus with childlike faith, there are at least two fruits that will always bear. One is endurance. Endurance. I have more and more and more come to think one of the main virtues that nobody talks about and we have to talk about it because it's so fundamental. It's just endurance. Endurance isn't naive. Why would you stick at that? Why would you continue to hold on to that? That's not naive. That's hopeful. Because if I believe God's promise, I believe in God himself, I believe in Jesus Christ whom he has sent, that is what enables me to just endure it doesn't really matter how things look. It doesn't matter how things feel. I'm able to endure, and it keeps me, it keeps me two things. It keeps me energetic. You know, I often go back to Caleb. Here's this 80-year-old guy. He believed God's promise, and at 80 years of age, he says, I'm ready to finally go into the promised land and take down a city. That's the energy that faith brings. When you know God, it's just not that daunting to see a city bristling with enemy spears. It's like God is God, you know, like God. <laughs> and it gives you energy makes you zealous for good works, and it keeps you not just, endurance isn't just energy, it's also alertness. Because when you believe in God like that and you say, yes, yes, amen, Lord, to who you are and what you said you're going to do, when your heart is there, you know what that does? It starts to clear away the fog of a lot of other enchantments. Charles Spurgeon once said, one of the hardest things to do in all the world is to keep the Christian awake on the enchanted ground. Because see, here's what your world is doing to you every day. Your world every day is telling you you need to kind of get out of that foggy enchantment that says that there's this whole God thing going on and snap out of it and come back to the real world. And the Christian understands is exactly the opposite, that every day the visible world is trying to enchant you where you are not awake to the actual reality, which is God doing what he's doing in his world. And it is faith, childlike faith, that just clears away the enchantment that, you know, that buzz that you all have on TikTok is the real thing. And spending time with the word of God is just something you kind of do as a religious thing because some people still are enchanted. No. <laughs> no, the fog is the rattling noise in your ear of all the shouting voices. And the clear reality is the voice of the Lord. Endurance. And secondly, and, and I'm done. Secondly, keep bearing fruit with endurance. Keep bearing fruit with love. With love. 
Because if you are a child of God through Jesus, you look around and you realize children of God are not rivals. They're siblings. See, my relationship with God through Jesus suddenly has changed my relationship with those who are also in this kingdom. We're not rivals with each other. We are not, there's not a competition for greatness here. We are siblings. And fueled by faith, fueled by this childlike faith before God that says, I believe in your presence, your promises, your people, all that you're doing, that faith, childlike faith in Christ, it fuels a love that is generous and fervent and resilient. A love that is generous. If I'm loved by my father this much, that means that my gifts and the things that he gives to me are for other people. They're for you. My gifts are for you. My gifts are not for me. My life is for you. And we all win when any member of our body wins. That's generous love fueled by faith. And it's fervent. This really hit me hard this morning. Father says, I'm your keeper. Father says, I'm your keeper. See, you know, looking at our lives in, in, in the world, I wouldn't necessarily feel like I'm your keeper. Your problems are your problems. The father who made me his child and made you his child says, I am my brother's keeper. And that means I don't have the luxury of indifference. Oh, I show up for worship, we hang out for 45 minutes, and then we go home and we're detached. And I really don't really care about those people. We don't have that luxury in the body of Christ, in the family of God. Love fueled by faith is fervent. I'm my brother's keeper. And not least, it's resilient. Love fueled by faith in God, it can stay strong as you're looking at people who are ignorant, people who double down on the dumbest ideas, people who are immature, who talk a lot and their lives are just a wreck. You look around at things that are done that are just so wrong and gosh, so many more things that are left undone and it's just heartbreaking and you're able to have strong, resilient love because I believe that this is the workshop of God. And if Jesus loves me, then I better get busy loving you. And I'm sure you feel exactly the same as you look at me. If Jesus loves you, then maybe you can even love me. And there's resiliency in our love. That's the fruit of love that flows when you keep on believing. Keep believing. Keep bearing fruit. Is Trinity a great church? You know, you can easily see how that question goes all wrong. In Jesus' kingdom, the greatest church is the one where the saints have the most childlike trust in their God and their Savior and where the social fruit of that childlike faith is humble, vulnerable, venturesome, faithful love. And like you, I pray that God will make Trinity that kind of church to a thousand generations. Amen. Do it, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus we pray.